Thank you all so much for giving out to our church. Thank you for worshiping with us. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to open up to John chapter 20 this morning and begin our time by reading just two verses, but two very important verses, uh, and then we'll be turning back to another familiar chapter in the Gospel of John that you'll figure out, I think, here in just a short while. Uh, but John chapter 20, verse number 30 and 31, uh, maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't know this, but John's Gospel really the story ends at chapter 20, um, but kind of like a novel that you may have read before or your favorite book, uh, there's an epilogue, which is kind of an extra story. It's part of the gospel, of course. It's part of God's word. Uh, But the last chapter is sort of like an extra story that kind of just further uh, punctuates what the main story was was meant to tell. And, And we know that by the way that he ends chapter 20, Verses 20, but verses 30 and 31 really just are a powerful summary of all that has been told before. John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse number 30 and 31. This is John kind of explaining why he wrote this book. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe, that you, that you and I, anyone that would be reading this, John wrote this around 90 AD, little did he know that you and I would be reading it all these years later, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing or by believing, you may have life in his name. Got a little bit of uh, uh, some facts to throw at you this morning. Maybe you knew this stuff, maybe you didn't know this, but I think it's going to be intriguing nonetheless. Uh, Did you know that studies show that the average person will encounter about 10,000 people in their lifespan? That you, the average person, right? Me, you, all of us. Now, again, some of us may be a little bit under this, some may be way over this. But the average person encounters as in cross paths with, right? You didn't, maybe didn't meet them, shake their hand, know their name, but you encounter around 10,000 people across the span of your life. That includes kids you maybe uh, were around in school but never really got acquainted with. Uh, that includes people you pass while shopping. That includes people that you, uh, that you met maybe when you were attending a super big event or you went to a big populated place. Um, and again, some of us, uh, we may skew softer than this. Some of us may uh, be way above this. But uh, you know, if you're reclusive enough, you might manage to get a job off the grid somewhere. You, you might make it out of this world seeing less than five. 5,000 people. But, but most people, um, especially if you go to a lot of uh, you know, highly populated places for vacation or, or throughout your life, um, especially if you go to college at a large university, um, you're going to probably surpass the 10,000 number. So to help you visualize kind of what, how, how 10,000 should register with you, um, the last census a few years ago uh, records that about 11,000 people live in Lincolnton, the city limits of, of Lincolnton. Uh, so that's just within this little little circle uh, that, that we're a part of. Um, and, and that same report shows there are about 90,000 people in the county, in Lincoln County. Uh, so now, of course, nobody's ever going to meet every person uh, or, or see them all at once, but that kind of gives you an idea about how many 10,000 people adds up to. So out of those 10,000 people, um, how many do we really meet? 
How, how many do you think that we really uh, get acquainted with, maybe know them by name or know of their name? Uh, so the estimates are all over the place. Uh, uh, again, we're talking averages, so some undercut this, some completely blow this out of the water. Uh, one study shows that the average person can recognize or can name around 300 to 400 people that they've met. Uh, another study goes a little bit higher to around 700 or, or 800. That includes people throughout your whole life, people that have passed on and, and that you know, as you've lived out your your days, so um, all this depends on our exposure, really. But but our, our jobs play a big role in it. Where we attend school plays a big factor. So so if we just average it out, the average person knows or meets around six hundred people across their life, and, and that means you 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 know their name, or you at least at one point knew their name. Uh, you you can recognize them, or you can look in a yearbook and say, yeah, I knew that person, or you can see them across the, the aisle or across the, the way. Yeah, I know that person. I remember that person. I actually am acquainted with that person in some capacity. Uh, so, you know, if you're in sales or if your job involves, you know, a revolving door of people, if you were in the military or you had a sports background, um, you know, even pastors or, or teachers, um, you know, you meet way more than 600 people. You would meet way more than 800 people. But many of those, you know, their professional relationships, uh, the names and faces fade away after a while. So I think this 600 number is pretty accurate for most of us. And you'd be surprised at how many people you actually know and how many people you actually could put a name to a face. So we're funneling this down. So we encounter around 10,000 people. We meet truly around 600 people. But when you start combing through those numbers, how many of those 600 are doctors? How many of those 600 are sales agents or people that we see at a restaurant all the time or a workplace all the time or at a church that we kind of, you know, have a casual relationship with or a place that we go to do recreation? If we sort through all those factors and funnel down all those dividing acquaintances from real friends and, and friends to close friends uh, and, and differentiate relatives to family we actually see often, um, various studies suggest that the average person ends up having around 10 to 25 people they would call good friends. That you would say, yeah, you know, they're, they're more than just someone I know. They're, they're a good friend of mine. They're someone that I trust with my life or I know well enough that I would, you know, I, I would, hey, let them into my house and hang out with them and have, a, you know, spend some time with them. They're, they're people that I have a take-home relationship with. I don't just see them at work or I don't just see them at church or I don't just see them when I go to that place often. Um, the average person, and again, some of you are, are social butterflies and you may have 50 people, but most of us, between 10 or 25, any season of our lives, um, there, there's around 10 or 25 people that we would call good friends. So we've really weeded down the list, haven't we? From 10,000 to 600 to 25 or fewer. But we got to take another step to another level. Uh, the numbers are going down, but the importance is going up or the importance of the relationship. Again, all these studies, you, you can, you know, if you want to know my sources, I'll, I'll share them with you. I, I doubt that's too interesting to you. But if, if you want to know, I, I can. Um, but, but to take this a, a further step, studies show that there's around four people in our lives that most of us would call close friends. And, now, you know, no offense to people that aren't our close friends, but you know the difference, right? You know the difference between someone who says you're a good friend and someone who says you're a close friend. 
What makes them close friends? Well, closer than other handfuls of people that we have a good relationship with or are good friends with. Well, most of us would say the four people that we call close friends, and, and maybe you have ten, maybe you have only two. Again, it, we're all different. But most of us have around four that we would say are close friends. And, and the way we kind of categorize this is these are people who have impacted our life in such a way that you elevate them above the rest. In terms of significance of the relationship and attention, you give them. So let's try to process all this. We meet up to 10,000 people. We may know 600 people's names and faces through personal interaction. We may call 10 or 25 a good friend at a various season of our life. But at the end of the day, there's around four people, four people that we are going to impact deeply and who will impact us as deeply. Maybe the same four people may be different across the, you know, from us to them and, and them to us. So you, if you read a biography or if you watch a documentary, a documentary, documentary series about a famous person, celebrity, politician, athlete, um, you know, they'll have all sorts of people come in uh, and, and talk about the person's life, look back on the person's life. Um, there's probably someone in there that really never knew the person, but they give kind of the fan's perspective, uh, what it was like to cover them or what it was like to kind of know of them or be a fan of theirs. There'll be somebody that comes in that's a reporter or a colleague uh, that, that really wasn't a friend but was kind of close enough in the same sphere and arena of life that they can kind of comment about what it was like to share the stage with them. Uh, then there's the group of people uh, that may talk about the time they knew the person well, from their childhood to their young adult to their, to their older life. Um, and there's this revolving door of people who come in who speak about a certain era of the person's life, a certain time period of the person's life. But if you watch documentaries, if you read documentaries and biographies, there's usually just a handful of people um, who really give valuable uh, personal information about the person that's being reported, the person that's being uh, uh, you know, doc documented and, and, and the story who, that's being told. Um, there's a handful of people who really tell you who the person was, uh, what the person was like, how the person impacted their world uh, and impacted the world. Throughout all of our lives, throughout any of our lives, um, at the end of all of our lives, there's probably going to be a short list of people who we could call upon that could witness who we really were, what sort of difference we made in their life and in the world, and how we impacted others with the life that we lived. Now, I don't know you, but you may have a long list of people. You may have an even shorter list of people, but all of us know there's a select few people that we really get to know. We care for deeply, and they cared for us back the same. So in a hypothetical situation, if someone were to, were, were to come to you and say, hey, I want to do a documentary on your life, uh, who are the people that I need to line up? Give me a short list of names that can really speak to the person you are and the kind of life that you lived. And I think all of us could name a few, and not more than a few, a few people who definitely left a sizable impact on us and that we made an impact on as well. Those are the stories that you would want told. And if our story is going to be truly appreciated, these are the stories that need to be heard. So we are entering into the Easter season, as March is already here. Can you believe it? Uh, we are just a month and a few days away from Easter Sunday. And naturally, over the next month, we're going to be thinking about the life, more, life of Jesus more and more 
as the day approaches. Uh, when we think about Jesus, he's one of a kind, right? Um, he, he doesn't really fit into these statistics. Uh, removing the omniscience and omnipresence that we know he has now in heaven, even during his earthly ministry, Jesus was constantly traveling through the land of Israel. He was meeting new people, and even those he barely got to know, he would leave an encounter with him, a meeting with him, different brand new people. Uh, he was God in a body, in indeed, after all. So he was always speaking life and spreading waves of grace and truth wherever he went. And, and whether he was talking from a hillside to a crowd or sitting one-on-one -on -one to someone over dinner, nobody ever encountered Jesus and left the same person. He made a difference in everybody's life, even if it was just a short, temporary one-on-one. -on -one. Again, he's Jesus. You would expect that. It's hard to fit him into these boxes that we've went over today. Uh, it's hard to fit him into the statistics that we can relate to or that we uh, are applied to. But, but that being said, there are some people that encounter Jesus, who met Jesus, who talk with Jesus. There are certain people who met Jesus and their witness paints an extraordinary picture that just stands out above the rest of the stories. It wasn't that he loved them more or gave them more. It's just that they were one of the few people who had a one-of-a-kind impact or one-of-a-kind encounter with him, and they really speak to what Jesus can do for anyone who knows him personally and sincerely. And the Bible elevates a few of those stories, a few of those people, and lets their story reach us this side of history. While we may only have the capacity to know a few people deeply, the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he has a heart for all of us. His mind and his might is infinite overall, but his heart is intimate towards all. You and I only have the capacity to know a few people at a time, right? To get to know a few people, select group of people at any point in our life. We only have the capacity and only have the time, honestly, to encounter a few people throughout our lives. But Jesus is not held back by those limitations that we are. Jesus as infinite as he is and as really too good for us that he is above us and beyond us he has a heart that is intimate and that loves each and every one of us and wants to know each and every one of us personally we, we did this in our devotion on Friday but a, a verse worth, repeat, worth repeating Deuteronomy 33 the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms so as mighty as God is as expansive as God is as big and beyond us as God is he is personal in his reaching out to all of us this was often hard for the Jews to see in the Old Testament, but Jesus came to make this known about God. If he made manifest any attribute, it's this one. Jesus obviously impacted way more than just four people, but one of the gospel accounts actually elevates a select few of the many, many people whose lives he changed. So while Matthew, Mark, and Luke take a more narrative approach and give us more about the stories, uh, the, the, the settings that Jesus would spend his ministry in, the parables that he taught, the sermons that he preached, the miracles that he worked on a mass wide scale uh, and, and really are more chronological. The Gospel of John tells us the story of Jesus with a different approach by focusing on the personal stories of the handful of people that Jesus impacted deeply and significantly. 
Now, John's gospel, again, it tells the story from beginning to end, from first of his ministry to Passion Week, but the first half really focuses on a group of individuals who encounter Jesus in a personal and powerful way. And John, as he's writing this story, as he says, well, you know what, Matthew, Mark, and Luke already told the story. If I'm going to tell my story, it's going to be unique. It's going to be different. I'm not just going to write the same thing again, that I've got some stories to tell that they don't know because they weren't as close to Jesus as I was. And I know about some people that Jesus was close with that nobody has ever even heard their stories. So if I'm going to write my story down, I'm going to make sure that I include some of the most extraordinary examples of what Jesus can do for any one of us. So John wanted to let their story speak for themselves. So really the whole gospel is really wrapping around these these interview-like or these expressions of these individuals who met Jesus, encountered Jesus, and had a story to tell about Jesus. When one by one, a different person comes in and says, and John's really telling their story through his own words, and basically they're saying this, let me tell you my Jesus story. Let me tell you about the time that Jesus changed my life. And I emphasize the time part because there is a point in time in every one of our lives where Jesus comes to us, where we encounter Jesus. And it's more than just a passing glance. It's more than just a casual, hey, how you doing? I'll see you later. But there's something, there's a time in all of our lives, or maybe it's multiple times where God is really trying to get a hold of us. There are times in our life where God says, hey, this, is, this, is, this means something. This is an opportunity for you to see your life change. This is an opportunity for you to have a brand new beginning or have a, another chance. This is an opportunity for you and I to know each other in a way that you haven't ever known before. Now, if you were asking witnesses to take the stand to give an account of, of your life, you would know the people to call upon. So John knew the people that he was going to talk to and he, the stories that he were gonna, was going to tell. Uh, to, to give the how uh, uh, Jesus impacted the world, to give the what Jesus did, to give the who Jesus was. Because John knew that the, the who he was to these few is the same Jesus he could be to anybody that could hear and believe his story. According to John, during his earthly ministry, there are a few people whose stories and witness stand above the rest. And John believed they had the ability and the power to transform lives forever if they were written down and preserved for future generations. And thankfully, all these years later, we get to read them and let them speak into our lives as well. And to see for ourselves the way Jesus impacted their lives, he can do the same for us. Now, in fact... We've opened up, we've read the end of John's gospel, so I'm telling y'all, the, I'm giving you the, the end of the story at the beginning of the series. His sign-off for the whole book reveals the reason that he wrote. He says in John 20, 31, hey, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. We got to see Jesus do this kind of stuff every day for three years or more. They're not written in this book. John says, I didn't write everything. I know Matthew told that story. I didn't include that story. I know Luke talks about this, but I didn't think that that was as important as what I wrote down. The stories that the Spirit of God led me to include, the stories that I have written down in this book have been specifically and strategically selected for one goal in verse 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So we're going to meet some people that they were convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, that he changed their life, that they found life in him. And I believe that if you hear their stories and you go the road that they went down, you can equally find the invitation to believe and 
that by believing you may have life in his name or from him. So John tells us Jesus impacted a lot of people, but I'm choosing to focus on these few stories. I believe they'll punctuate his promise and power, most of all, and they especially invite us to put our faith in him and to have an exchange take place. As we put our faith in him, we receive life from him. And, and that's the transaction that John is trying to sell us on. That if you put faith in Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, he gives you life. And, and, and when John says life, Throughout the gospel, you'll hear John refer to abundant life or eternal life. Throughout the book, he is telling us that Jesus offers us a new, better, and fuller brand of life. You cannot find it anywhere or through anyone else. It's exclusive to knowing Jesus. That you don't just get this by knowing about Jesus, or you don't get this by knowing about some God out there who's way away but you know might care about us. You get this by knowing Jesus in a personal relationship. So while, yeah, we're all alive, right? Check my pulse. We're, we're all living today. But when you get to know Jesus, he makes you question whether or not you're really living under the parameters and in the reality that God truly intended. There's no way that you encounter Jesus and you walk away from him thinking to yourself, am I living the way that God truly intended that I could live? Because after you meet Jesus, you get exposed to a brand of life that is exclusive to him. And if you don't have what he has, you walk away from him knowing that there's something you need from him and there's something you're not going to get anywhere but from him. Now, I want you to look over at chapter 21. John, as he tells the epilogue, he kind of repeats himself in verses 24 and 25. He once again signs off and says, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. So John's kind of talking, bragging on himself. Hey, y'all can trust me. Y'all can trust me. And there are many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John says, I don't know where you are when you're reading this. Again, 90 AD, he's writing. John's an old, old man. Exiled on the Isle of Patmos, got to go back to the church at Ephesus. He's living out his days as an elder there, encouraging each other, encouraging the people to love each other, to support the church, to put their focus on Jesus. And John, as he's writing these last words before he goes to heaven, John's looking into the future and he's thinking, you know what? I don't know who's going to read this 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, 2,000 years from now. Do you think he thought about us? I, I don't know. John says that I know that if you're reading this, your life could be the next chapter in the story that God is writing. You say, what? You say, Justin, my life's kind of complicated. I'm going to need more than a chapter. That's fine. God can give you all the chapters you need. You read the book of Job before? Hey, it's a long book. And that was just one day that went bad. Right? God can give you all the time you need, all the chapters you need. But John's saying, hey, if you meet Jesus the way I met Jesus, you could be the next book that's written about what God has done. That, that, John's selling us the world on Jesus, right? But I think we can trust him. 
that your life, my life, all of our lives could be changed. John says, you can trust my testimony. I witnessed these things with my own eyes. I was there from beginning to end. And while he didn't accompany Jesus in every episode that we're going to read about in the Gospel of John, he got to hear Jesus talk about opening eyes, changing hearts from every walk of life, every circumstance, giving them a fuller version of life. He believed that Jesus fits into all of our stories. Ultimately, John believed that the key ingredient missing in all of our stories is Jesus. And that adding Jesus to our lives gives us limitless potential. That adding Jesus to our lives leads us to the fuller and most fulfilled version of life that God has always intended us to find. That we are looking for in all different avenues. If there's a vice you're wrestling with, Jesus has got grace for you. If there's a darkness that you're facing, Jesus has light for you. If there's a grave you're buried in, Jesus has life to give you. If there's an answer you're seeking today, Jesus has truth to tell you. That he's not a philosopher that's going to give you a vague answer. and He's not a philosopher that wants to make your brain expand and think for yourself. Jesus is a savior who wants to make things clear to you. He wants to help you uh, and give you the salvation that you so desperately need. So one of the stories that I think John elevates above the rest that really uh, uh, speaks to this getting an answer from God uh, that John gives prime real estate to in the third chapter of his gospel, if you want to turn back there, one of the stories that John elevates that, of course, the whole world knows about more than maybe most stories of the Bible is the story of Nicodemus, the story of Nicodemus. One of the people, of all the people that Jesus impacted, Nicodemus would stand up and say, I think my story is the most powerful story. And John would agree, and I think you'll agree. Now, Nicodemus is a lot like us. He was just trying his best, do his best within the lines that he was placed in. He was just trying to live out his life the best he could and do the best he could to get through this life and hopefully make it to where he wanted to be in the end. He kept coming up short. He kept coming up against barriers. He kept, he kept facing inclines. And he was a little frustrated at how many around him didn't try nearly as hard as him and seemed to get free passes or seemed to get by with things that he would never let himself by with. You probably know this, but Nicodemus was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a group of religious people who signed up for extra service and devotion uh, to hopefully attract God or detect God first. So the Pharisees believed that God had left Israel for a short season, but he was going to come back. So they wanted to be as good as they can be, and they wanted to be as right as they could be about as many things possible so that when God showed back up, they would detect him, and maybe, just maybe, by being so good and being so right, God would say, I'm going to come back sooner because they deserve me so much. So either way, the Pharisees just were obsessed with getting God's attention because for years, they felt like God was giving them no attention for, for different reasons. The Pharisees organized around 150 B.C., so about 150 years before Jesus was born, about 180 years before his ministry began. Now, when you hear Pharisee, you probably think of a certain description, that you probably have been in church all your life, and when you hear Pharisee, you think self-righteous. If that's something that came to your mind, you're, you're right on the money. The Pharisees uh, were often called and are often remembered as self-righteous people. 
Now, this word has a broad meaning, but usually we define it in a particular way. Probably when you hear self-righteous, you think about arrogance, you think about judgmental uh, people, you think about hypocrites, maybe, uh, and and all those are appropriate descriptions. Self-righteousness really is fueled by looking down on others to feel better about yourself. That's kind of what the Pharisees did. Now, specifically, though, they they were a people that were trying to feel right with God. And that's what righteousness means. Righteousness is about having a right standing with God. It's about being full of what's right so that you are on good terms with God. So in its most basic form, self-righteousness really just means that you determine what's righteous yourself. That you think you've got a pretty good handle on things. You know uh, how it works, how life works, and you're pretty you know, good at reading the room. And, and you think you are able to determine what's righteous in and of yourself. So the Pharisees were made up by a bunch of religious people that had a shared conviction and a shared disdain for the world. Uh, So they were self-righteous, yes. But I want to make it clear that religious people aren't the only people that are capable of being self-righteous. In a lot of ways, all of us are self-righteous. As in, we all kind of pick and choose for ourselves and make it up as we go what it means to be righteous. We all kind of have an idea of what it means to obtain or maintain a right standing with God and thus arrive at this best version of life, this most fulfilled version of life. That if we're right enough, that we're going to get in the right favor with God and that God's going to give us the, the version of life that we have been waiting for, working for, and dreaming of. Now, some days we feel bad about something uh, and we say, hey, I'm not going to do that anymore. But the next day you might say, well, that's not a big deal. Other people do worse. I'm not going to really worry about that. Some days we expect a lot of ourselves. Some days we excuse a lot of ourselves from ourselves. Uh, Some days our morals are strong. Some days they're all over the place. So it's easy to pick on the Pharisees, but we all kind of just make it up as we go. We all kind of um, make righteousness a moving target. And, and we move it to wherever it suits us best. We make a big deal about some things and criticize others who come short. We make a less of a big deal about some things because we fall short in those areas. You know, everybody assumes they're righteous. And we naturally question whether everybody else is. So if you combine the judgment we have for others and everyone else's judgment towards us, we all are on the outside looking in. And, and at the end of the day, Those games don't do any of us any good. And maybe that's because none of us are good at being righteous and none of us are right about what's good enough. Now, you may think you're good and you may think you're right, but I may disagree with you. And who's more right? Who's more or who's done more good? We all could argue until the sun goes down. So why the story, that's why the story of Nicodemus is really the quintessential encounter between Jesus and a, and a person. Because Nicodemus is all of us. In the back of all of our minds, even if we're doing everything we, we know to do, even if we're grinding away at life, even if we can justify ourselves in this way and excuse ourselves in that way, we all wonder, am I on the right path? Am I right with God? Am I going to end up where I want to be eventually one day? And, and to put it in the terms the Pharisees were wrestling with, when God moves in this world, will I notice it? When I leave this world, will I spend forever with God? Nicodemus and the Pharisees put on a tough front, assuming that if anyone was good enough to please God, they were. If anyone was righteous, they were. But deep down, and really not so deep down, they wore it on their sleeves, they were very insecure. They were very concerned that what if 
our self-righteousness isn't righteous at all. What if we're never going to arrive? What if we never arrive at better life by our own means? And then along came Jesus, who displayed righteousness of God through everything that he did. If God was with anyone, he was with Jesus. And while this was exciting to non-religious people, to the outcasts, it was troubling to the Pharisees because they were as lost from God as anyone. And despite the front they put on, they felt condemned by Jesus. They felt outdone by Jesus because they were the ones that were supposed to encounter God. And yet here comes Jesus away out of their league, out of their group, and clearly God was with them. And that's what opened their eyes. The Pharisees were always chasing the better version of life, yet they couldn't find it. And Jesus shows up, and if anyone had it, he did. They thought if they were just to arrive at some peak place in life, they would somewhere along the way start enjoying life in a better and more, more fulfilled way. But, they all, they, but they, all they ever experienced was frustration, insecurity, jealousy, and personal hypocrisy. So the Pharisees heard about Jesus, they watched Jesus, and they all draw straws one night, and they send one of their own to go and ask Jesus a question. What's your secret? How do we get the brand of life that you so clearly have? As we wrap up, listen to these familiar verses from John 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and to him said, Rabbi, I love this, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And the next verse says, Jesus answered, but Nicodemus hasn't asked a question yet, has he? No question mark yet, right? So really, Jesus interrupts him and says, okay, let's cut the pleasantries out, Nicodemus. I know why you're here. I know what question you want to ask me. You want to know what my secret is. You want to know how I got what you've been working for for years. You want to know, how did I get this connection with God? How did I arrive at the life that I have? And y'all have been trying to find it forever. I know what you want. So let me give it to you as straight as I can. Nicodemus most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you guys are trying to arrive at a place that you haven't even ever seen in order to determine how to get there. You're just trying to make it up as you go, aren't you? And it's a moving target. I've seen it. I've watched you. Unless you are born again. So here's what Jesus reveals to Nicodemus. To all of us, this one famous statement. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't think that a lot of us really know what he's talking about. We've heard this forever and ever. But do we know what he means when he says, unless you are born again? Here's what he says. When we're born into this world, we're born into a fallen world. So when we're born, all of us born naturally, we are born into a fallen world, frustrated by limitations, frustrated by sin, frustrated by all kinds of problems, and we're deceived by misdirection. Sin holds us down, sin holds us back, sin's a bondage that affects us mentally and physically in every way in between. It works in the universe to deceive us and lead us astray, to offer us false remedies, to give us false hope, to take us in the wrong direction. Sin is the CEO, as in it runs the operation, of all religion and all self-help systems. 
tries to bog us down with all sorts of would-be solutions to make us feel right with God and feel good about ourselves, yet they never really give us true life from God. Jesus looks Nicodemus in the eyes and he looks you and me in the eye and he says to us, salvation is impossible for you to obtain on the path you've been on from birth. As in, hey, you are born into a fallen world. So therefore, you are a fallen creature. You are held back by sin. You are frustrated by sin. You are bound by all sorts of limitations. And you are led about in all sorts of deceptive ways. So listen to me clearly. Salvation and full and true and better life is impossible for you to obtain on the path you've been on since birth. So you and I need to be reborn to experience new life. Does that make sense? The life we're experiencing now is because we were born into it. How'd you get here? You were born, right? Everybody here? No, 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 don't think anybody has any weird other stories to tell, right? We were all born into this world. And as a product of being born into a fallen world, we are fallen creatures. And we stay on that path until the day we die. Unless we are reborn. Unless we have an encounter with God and step into an ex a new kind of life, but you are going to have to be born into it. Here's the short of it. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot better ourselves. We all think we can. We all try to at different points in our life. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot better ourselves. And the, now, now the response of, well, I guess it doesn't matter what I do. That's not good either. We need to stop making excuses for ourselves and letting us off the hook as if we might get it right the next time. So I've given you the two extremes. You can't fix yourself. But you need to stop giving yourself excuses about, hey, it's not a big deal. Yes, it's a big deal. But, but you said I couldn't fix myself. No, you can't. Well, that makes it even more dire. Uh, exactly. The reality is we need to be born again. We need to be washed and regenerated. We need to be filled with something new. And that's what Jesus says in verse number five after Nicodemus, you know, asked him the question, well, how can you be born again? How can you enter into the womb a, a second time? And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you're smarter than that. Let me explain. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, Nicodemus, you need to be regenerated, washed and cleaned by God and filled with something new. The water of God's cleansing power, the spirit that fills us with new life. And Jesus promises the spirit of God will counter the sin of man in every way. You're born with sin, right? That's what's wrong with us, right? We are born with sin. When you're reborn, you're reborn with God's spirit. Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he says, and he looks at us. He says, the only way you're going to get this life, the only way you're going to experience the new birth is by trusting in me, by following after me, by depending on me, by depending and following and trusting in Jesus for salvation, direction, and purpose. Now, why did Nicodemus come to Jesus? Because he had observed Jesus do all kinds of signs and miracles, all kinds of wonders, all kinds of powerful things. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you think the signs and the miracles I'm doing for people, you think that suggests I've got a connection with God? Wait until you see what doing all this for people costs me. You hear me? 
Why did Nicodemus come? We know that you're a man from God because no one else could do the things that you do unless you had God with you. That's why he came. And then down in verse 13, Jesus says, Nicodemus, I know you're impressed by the miracles and by the power and the wonders, but wait until you see what's next. No one's ascended to heaven except the one who came down from heaven. That is the son of man who is in heaven. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes or trusts in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus says, when you see me lifted up, when you see me crucified, you'll know what, this, what it costs me to do for others what I'm doing. You'll know what it took to give you the life that you so desperately want. He says, Nicodemus, when you see me lifted up, trust that I did it for you to give you what you cannot obtain on your own, to give you new and abundant and full eternal life. Now, John summarizes this for us in verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish should not be lost, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believed in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Some of those famous verses in the Bible, the most important verses even, came as a result of a man admitting that he was lost and he longed for greater and more full life. John says to all of us, God loves you. Jesus is his gift to you. His death is proof and power that you don't have to keep living the old way. You can be born again if you simply transfer your trust out of yourself into and onto Jesus. It's that simple. That you've been trusting in yourself. You've been leaning on yourself. You've been depending on yourself. Hey, I'll have to do it myself. I guess I'll have to wait for someone else to help me with this. You've been trusting in yourself or in those around you to fix this, to better this, to improve this, to forgive this, and to, to, to redeem this. You've been leaning on your own way and your own understanding. John says the gift of God is that Jesus came to give you what you cannot find for yourself. And the way you receive it is by transferring your weight, transferring your dependency, transferring your trust out of yourself, out of this world, fully, totally, completely onto Jesus. Just as that pew is holding you up where you're sitting, that's the picture of what salvation is. Nicodemus' journey to this transaction was a bit, bit complicated. As the Pharisees more and more were critical of Jesus, Nicodemus spoke up a time or two, calling that they would investigate him more because he just wanted to hear more from him. The story goes, as you know, he's arrested by the Pharisees, scheming and plotting. He ends up sentenced to die on a cross. And all of them, the whole council of Judea, all the crowds, watched as Jesus was beaten and was uh, burdened with a cross and was commanded to go up the hill outside the temple to a place called Golgotha, to a place called Calvary. He crawled up the hill under the weight of that beam. And then he disappeared as he got to the top except for those that were very close to him. 
As he was laid down, he was nailed to the beams. He was nailed to that cross. And then he was lifted up. And somewhere down at the base of the hill was Nicodemus. And as he saw Jesus lifted up, that's when he knew. He's doing this for me. That's when his eyes were opened. And he realized the only way he was ever going to see into the kingdom of God was through the man who was nailed to the cross. And that's when Nicodemus believed for himself. He was so moved, and apparently a friend of him, a friend of his on the council was also so moved. They both resigned from the council, believing that if they were ever going to get a hold of the better and fuller life that Jesus had, this was the only way. So they put their faith in him. They watched him die for them so that they might live through him. And after he died, they went public. They used their clout to negotiate the body from Rome. And Nicodemus and his friend Joseph, who was a rich man that owned a garden tomb, took the body of Jesus buried the body of Jesus they did not know if they would ever see him again but they knew he would always be with them and that's when the new life he promised really began pouring out because three days later he rose again and the same power that rose him up began filling every heart that believed on him and that same power that same life still does the same to this day to everyone who puts faith in Jesus as their savior as your savior as my savior who says I'm not going to try anymore on my own I'm not going to excuse myself anymore I'm going to own it I'm going to lay it at Jesus feet and I'm going to trust that he died for me and the life that he had and the life that he lived and the promise that he made is to me personally and what he gave to people like Nicodemus he can and will give to me as well if we stop trying to save ourselves stop making excuses for ourselves and trust in him and his promises we will find new and fuller life we will be reborn free from sin's dominion free from frustrations and burdens free from the chains that bind us full of God's spirit full of resurrection life that's what it means to be reborn to have a new birth to die to yourself to let that path you've been on since birth end and to be raised up to something brand new. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been born again? Are you like Nicodemus and you're trying to get by your way and you're kind of mixing, matching religion as you go and you're, you do good some days, you do bad other days, but you change the rules on those days to make yourself look better. Jesus says, Nicodemus, quit doing all that mess. Look at me. I'm going to do the hard part for you. All you've got to do is trust in me and I will give you the life that you so desperately long for. Have you ever had a moment in time where you surrendered to God? When you said to Jesus, I want something that I cannot get for myself and it's going to take a supernatural work of God to bring me out of this. Have you ever been reborn? And if you have, Somewhere back in history, somewhere back in time, you surrendered to God. But, but I want to ask you, are you living like someone who's been reborn? Are you living like someone who's been born again? Or are you still living under that bondage and that burden that you were saved from? If you want new life, you can find it. But you will only find it in Jesus.
For God so loved the world that he gave us a gift, the gift of his only son. And whoever, whoever believes or trusts in him will not be lost, will not perish, but have everlasting life. That gift is ours for the taking. If we will just trust that Jesus did it all for us. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for a reminder of the simple gospel that says to us, that says to all of us, how much you love us, what Jesus did for us. Lord, I pray you would speak to this room today. If there's somebody that's never been born again and they need that new transformative experience, they need to be made new, they need to be born anew, born from above, Lord, I pray you would show them that they can be saved today, that they can put their faith in Jesus and be transformed. Lord, for a lot of us, we were saved so far ago, yet we've stepped back into that old way again and again and again. And we're not living like people that have been reborn. We're not living like people that have had our chains broken and our hearts filled with the Spirit of God. God, I pray you would open our eyes and show us what we have available to us, that we don't have to live in the old way anymore. Uh, that we can be transformed by this new life that we've been given. That we're not held back by our original birth anymore. We are propelled forward by our new birth, that we can have eternal, full, better, new, abundant life today and tomorrow and every day going forward. If we will just put our faith in Jesus. Lord, I pray that Nicodemus' story could be our story and that everybody here today could say, let me tell you about the day that Jesus changed my heart, that I was born again and I've not been the same since. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.